Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. If you are new with us, just want to welcome you uh, to Phoenix Bible Church. If I haven't met you yet, if I didn't do that on the way in, I'd love to do that on the way out. I'm always right by those back doors. would love to help you not just attend, but get connected to our church family. As we get into Nehemiah, we are in chapter 5. You heard Julian read it, but I encourage you to follow along with us. There's a lot there. If you haven't noticed, right? There's a lot there, so if you don't follow along, you're going to miss something. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one, a black one, right near you, so grab that. If you're trying to find it, it's about a quarter of the way through your Old Testament. Uh, You get through the Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles, and then you have Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you're new to the Bible, feel free to use the table of contents. That's definitely okay. That's why it's, it's there. And here's where we are in the story. Some of you have been here. Some of you, this is your first time. Here's where we are. Uh, We're dealing with the Jewish people in the Old Testament who have been exiled. And so they've been away from their home for a really long time, but they get freed up to come back to their home, which is Jerusalem. And this guy named Nehemiah shows up on the scene. He's Jewish, but he doesn't live in Jerusalem. He's been uh, living in the capital city, serving the Persian king as his cupbearer. But he gets a burden on his heart, he prays, he repents, he asks for permission from his king to go and serve his Jewish brothers in his homeland of Jerusalem. And so he takes this long journey, he gives up his position, it's an amazing story, you should go back and read it if you missed it, and he goes and they start to rally the troops to rebuild this city of Jerusalem because it's in bad shape. The walls have been broken down. The gates have been burned down. You see that, chapters 1 and chapters 2. And they start to make progress. But as they start to make progress, what we saw last week is they experience opposition. They advance and they get opposition. Over and over and over we see that as we show up on the scene in chapter 5, we redirect our attention from the rebuilding of the wall to the people themselves. These people who have been working hard amidst opposition to rebuild are having immense needs, and we're going to see what those needs are in just a few moments. Our, our first point, if you're taking notes, is need and greed. Verses 1 through 5, we see that. This scene shifts to their needs, and the first thing I want you to see right off the bat is their needs are made known. We're going to talk about what their needs are in just a minute, but I want you to see that their needs are made, made known. Look at the text with me. Verse 1, it says there's a great outcry. And so people have been experiencing these needs, but they don't remind, remain silent, right? They're speaking up. There's a great outcry amongst the people. And as I read that this week, part of me wondered, how long? How long had these needs been there before there was this great outcry? Had they been there just a little while? Had they been there for a long time and they just didn't say anything? I thought about what would have happened if there never was an outcry, right? If they just continued to face these needs and and they didn't rise up, they didn't say anything, they didn't speak out against the needs, what if they just kept silent? What would have happened to these people? And then I thought about Sundays. And I thought about this, what we're doing today, what you showed up to today. I just thought about how many times do we walk in here with needs? Big, small. We walk in here with needs, We come to church, maybe because somebody invited us, maybe because that's just what we do, and we walk in here with needs, and we go through the motions, and we just stay silent. There's no outcry, right? 
We just come in, we sing some songs, we listen to a message, and then we leave and we go eat lunch. And we're in the midst of need. Not everything is okay. Listen, big or small, some of you aren't in a crisis right now, but you still have daily needs. But what we often do is we show up to church, we go through the motions, and we talk to people, and we say things like, hey, how you doing? Good, fine. And then we say, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, good, fine. Now listen, are we doing good, fine? Not all the time, right? Some of us, we show up here, we at least got into an argument with our spouse on the way here. Right? Maybe the kids were sick. Maybe you didn't get enough sleep. And you walk in here and you have some needs. There's financial stress in your life. There's bigger needs. There's relational conflict. For some of us, there's relational conflict in this room. And we have needs. But we say, how are we doing? I'm doing good. And listen, how do I know we do that? Because I do that, Right? I did that this morning. Some of you said, hey, how you doing, Pastor? I'm doing good. I need to get somewhere, right? Do I have needs? Yeah, I have needs. But we often bypass our needs. We don't cry out about our needs. And listen, what I want you to see in this text, just from this first verse, is because they have a cry about their needs, they speak up about their needs, they're able to actually address their needs. You see that? The rest of chapter 5 is that. They cry out about their needs, and then they can actually solve them. Listen, you have needs. Let's not act like we don't. So we can actually solve them. So as you walk in here this morning, right now, whatever needs you have, don't leave them at the door. Have you ever heard that? You come to church, just just leave all your distractions at the door. Just leave all your needs, all the things you're thinking about, just leave them at the door and come in here and worship Jesus. That doesn't make any sense, right? Just just think with me for a second. Why would you show up to church with needs, leave them at the door, come in here and meet with a God who can actually meet your needs, and then leave, pick up your needs at the door, and go right about your schedule? That doesn't make any sense. We have the opportunity. Listen, that's why we have church is because we're in need. We have the opportunity to meet with a God who not only knows about your need, but has the power to do something about your need. Listen, you need to bring your needs into the row. You need to bring your needs into the songs we sing. You need to see the holiness of God, the justice of God, the forgiveness of God meet you in your need. That's why you're here, right? If we didn't need God, if we didn't have needs, we could just stay at home, right? We just sleep in. No, we are a people in need. So listen, if this is your first time here, if you're new to church, if this is a big deal for you to walk in these doors, listen, we're so glad you're here. And maybe if you did that, maybe part of the obstacles to get in here was you just thought, especially as you looked around and especially as everybody said, good, fine. How you doing? Good, fine. You thought, am I the only one with needs? I, I don't look like the rest of these people. Maybe I don't belong here. Listen. Do you have any needs? If you do, this is exactly where you belong. And this is exactly where everybody else belongs because we're all in the same boat. We have needs. Let's not act like we don't. Let's cry out about our needs. Let's grab somebody. Some of you need to do that today. We're going to get to a lot in this in just a second. But some of you need to do that today. We're we're not interested in playing church. 
Like, we didn't start this church two and a half years ago to, to have an amazing worship experience on a Sunday. I'm not interested in that. It's too hard, right? I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in coming in here and putting on a show, a performance, going through the motions, and then walking away with the same needs we had when we came here today. What's the point of that? Some of you have needs today. You need to stop somebody, and you need to have an outcry. And maybe it's not like an outcry, like you stand up on this stage and declare it like I am right now. But maybe you just pull aside the person who brought you and just say, hey, hey can we pray a second before we leave today? There's some needs in my life. There's some questions I have. Maybe you stop me on the way out and just say, hey, how do I get involved? I mean, I, I'm walking through this thing alone, and it's hard. You need to make that commitment today, right? Have an outcry about the needs in your life. That's what we see. That's how in the book of Nehemiah, in this chapter, God's able to move through those needs is because they admit there is a need. Now, let's look at what are those needs. Uh, there's three primary needs that we see. It starts with verse 2. They're starving. Look at the text with me. It says, with our sons and daughters, we are many. So there's lots of people. Let us get grain that we, that we may eat and keep alive. We've, we learn in verse 3, there's a famine in the land. Some scholars think maybe there's a famine because they're working so hard on this wall. All the resources, all the people are going towards rebuilding that maybe they've left their crops, and that's led to this famine. So people are starving. That's their first need. The second need is they're enslaved to debt. Verse 3, look at that verse. It says they're mortgaging all their property, so their fields, their vineyards, their houses, to get grain, to get food. They don't have enough money, right? So they take out a second mortgage. They apply for that second credit card. Right? They're trying to get by. They're enslaved to debt. And number three, they're enslaved to people. Verses four and five, they borrow money from people, and they're paying them back with their kids. These are big needs, right? They're enslaving their sons and their daughters, if you look at the text, because they're in debt. And this isn't happening to an opposing enemy or with an opposing enemy, this is happening with their own people. They're enslaving one another. There's some big needs. Later we find out more context to this. There's wealthy Jewish people, they're nobles, officials, you see it in the text, that are wealthy, that are taking advantage of the poor Jewish people. And they're fighting against one another in that way. Verse 1, it says they're like brothers. Verse 5, it says they're the same flesh. Right? So their kids play together. They're like family. Their children are like their children. They're like a family, but they're not acting like it as we see these needs. And the root of this is greed. The root of this is greed. And I think as we talk about greed in the church, sometimes that's difficult for us to relate to. Because typically when we think about greed, we think of extremes, right? Like we think of the politicians who are, are greedy, we think of the, the richest of the rich, they're greedy, like the people that are on the show Cribs. Right, you remember that show from the 90s-ish? Am I dating myself? Right, Cribs, have you guys seen this show? Help me out here. Yeah, so I just need to know that you know, Cribs, they go up to these extravagant houses of celebrities, and they see all this, these amazing things that they have, right? And so some of them have seven cars, like one for every day of the week, Right? And they roll them all out, and we watch that show, and part of us are like, man, that's kind of cool, right? Uh, but part of us are like, man, that's so greedy, 
Like, why don't you give me a car? That's what I say. Give me one of the seven, right? Uh, But we look at that and we just say, man, do you really need seven cars? Do you really need five pools? Right? That's so greedy. So we look at politicians. We look at the wealthiest people in our country and we think, well, well, that's that's our context for greed. They're, They're greedy. But is that the only category for greed? Right? Do we struggle with greed? I, I, I believe everyone in, in here believes it's a sin. I just think for a lot of us, we don't think we struggle with that sin. Can you relate to that? I, I'm in the same boat, so I want to help you with that. What is greed biblically? What is happening in this passage? How do we struggle with it in our own lives? I'm going to give you three things. The first one is this. Greed is valuing things more than God. We see that in Luke chapter 12. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of your possessions. So it's valuing things more than we value God. Placing them as ultimate over God. Have we done that? Do we do that? The second way uh, greed we see in the Bible, rather, is coveting the possessions of others. Proverbs 21. He covets greedily all the day long. So we don't just look at possessions in general, we look at our neighbor's possessions. And we say, ah, that'd be nice to have. That'd be nice to go on vacation like that. It'd be nice to drive that. It'd be nice to buy a house. That ah, must be nice. We covet. That's that's greed. Number three, we're never satisfied. We see that in Ecclesiastes 5. It says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. So, so does that help a little bit with the context of greed? Is it the politicians? Is it the wealthiest people in our world? Yes. Is it also us? Yeah. Right? Is it also us when we say, like, I love God, but I also love my things. Like, I'll serve God when I have abundance, but not if I have to sacrifice, not if it hurts a little bit. I mean, God, when you... When you talk about giving 10%, giving a tithe, like, is that before taxes or after taxes? Is that net or gross? I'm just struggling with that right now, right? Have you ever said that? Can we relate to greed? Yes. Do we have greed in our own hearts? You see, I think as we look at a passage like this, a story like this, it's easy for us to put ourselves in the place of the victim only, and not realize in our day and age, I think we're all a part of the, the top 1% of the wealth in our entire world, right? That all of us sitting in this room right now, we have much, but oftentimes we don't give much. We don't sacrifice much. We're not generous, that we have greed in our hearts. And listen, sometimes that can penetrate this room. Sometimes that can penetrate these people in this room, the church. And maybe you're not, like, taking stuff from people or taking advantage of people or enslaving people like we see in this text. Maybe you're not going that far, but maybe you're thinking, if I could just one-up that other person. Like, why do they get to do that and I don't get to do that? If I could just one-up them, if I could just be a little bit competitive, maybe secretly you kind of wonder, like, why do they go on vacation so much? Why do they have those things Maybe you look at people who are less privileged and you think, I could give something to them. I could take them out to lunch, but, but I kind of just want to go watch the game. Sometimes we experience greed in our own hearts, just like what's happening in this passage. And sometimes it is amongst our own people, and it's tragic. We, we see it in this moment. This is robbing them of their joy. This is robbing them of their effectiveness on this project of building the wall 
It's robbing them of their effectiveness as a, as a community together, working together to honor God and move his mission forward. It does the same for us, doesn't it? Anytime we have greed in our heart, it puts us back. It causes division. And that's the situation in chapter 5. And then we come to our second point, really the opposite of greed. We see need and generosity. Need and generosity, verses 6 through 13. Nehemiah, look at the verse in verse 6. He hears this outcry, these needs, and his response is anger. And I want you to look at this. It's righteous anger. And so can you be angry and not sin? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. We can be angry, but in our anger, do not sin. Scripture says that. We see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus goes into the temple, a place that God is supposed to be worshipped, and instead money is being worshipped. There's business going on in the temple, and what does Jesus do? He wrecks shop on everybody, right? He's angry. He's flipping tables if you go read the Gospels. So can you get angry and not sin? Yes, that's what Nehemiah is experiencing. How do we know that? Because this is really important to Nehemiah. Remember the context. Nehemiah left a palace to be with his people. He left a position to be with these people. Not for power, not for kicks. Like, let's see if we can rebuild this wall, like in 52 days, like maybe it could happen, 56 days. Maybe it could happen. It wasn't a contest. It's a big deal for Nehemiah. These people, this project is really important to him. And so when he hears about them enslaving one another, it angers him. You have to think about it, and we see it in the text, that Nehemiah points out a little bit later that these people in Jerusalem, they used to be slaves to other nations. Right? They were exiles. They were enslaved to other people. They got their freedom, and then they came back to their people, their hometown, and now what's happening? They're enslaved to one another. I mean, just, just wrap your mind around that. It would be like if some kids were in a bad family. They're getting taken advantage of. CPS comes in, DHS comes in and says, hey, or, or maybe the church comes in, IJM comes in, a Christian organization comes in and says, hey, these kids are being mistreated, they're being misused, and we're going to buy them out of that situation. We're going to set them up so they don't need to rely upon their parents who are abusing them, who are taking advantage of them. We're going to pull them out of that. Churches come together, people come together, organizations come together to make that happen. We're going to get them out of that family. And then we're going to have this Christian family adopt them and bring them into their home. It would be like if all of that happened, amazing story, that's what's happened here. And then that family, that Christian family who says they worship God begins to do the same thing that the other family used to do. They take advantage of their kids. They abuse their kids. They enslave their kids. That's what's happening here. So is Nehemiah angry about that? You bet he is, right? These are his people. These are his people. He left the palace to be with these people. And so he is angry because this is important to him. And you need to know something about anger. Typically, anger reveals what's important to us, right? We don't get angry about things that don't matter to us. We get angry about things that are important to us. And so like my 21-month-old baby, I don't know if you're going to believe this, but she gets angry, right? 
She's really cute, but she will mean mug the crap out of you, right? Some of you haven't seen this yet, and you're just thinking, no, not Tanavi. Yes, right? Uh, right now, she has an ear infection, and so it's not just occasional anger. It's often anger. Let me just tell you. And so she's screaming. She's mean mugging us at home. It's a hard life. And, and she's angry, and, and I'm going to give you a little hint. She's not angry about world hunger. My 21-month-old baby, she doesn't care about world hunger. What does she care about? What's she angry about? What's she mean mugging her mom and me about? Her hunger, right? She wants her peace. She wants her lollipop. She's angry, and what does she say? What do kids say when they're angry? Mine, right? That's mine. They don't say yours. That's not angry. And that's not a kid. I don't know if your kid does that. If so, let me know. Maybe we can have a parenting conference and you will lead it, right? (laughs) That's what kids do. And listen, some of us never grow out of that, do we? Like what makes us angry in this room is, is mine. That's my time. That's my schedule. That's my money. Those are my relationships, And what's important to us is not the injustices of the lives of those around us, but it's the inconveniences in our own life. Can you relate to that? I can. I I don't always get angry about the injustices I see even in my friendships or my family or in our church or in our world, but I get angry if I don't get my coffee on time, right? I get angry if people cut me off in traffic. I get angry when people offend me. That's mine. You see, anger reveals importance. It does so for Nehemiah. What's important to him, the reason why it's righteous anger, is because this is affecting his people. It's not affecting him. We're going to find out later. He's the governor. He can take land. He can take money. He can take food. Whatever he wants, it doesn't affect him. It affects his people, and so he's angry. They're enslaving one another. He loves these people. He's been leading these people. And he's angry. A good question for us to ask this morning is, what makes us angry? What makes you angry? What does that reveal about what's important to you? Is it only your schedule? Is it only your time? Is it only your money? Is it only your relationships, your personality, your advancement, your status? Or do you get angry when you see other people in this church who are in need? Do you get angry when you see needs in our our city and injustices, or is it only your inconvenience? What makes us angry reveals what's important to us. It does so for Nehemiah, and we know it's important. Notice what it says in verse 7, what he does in his anger. It's so important that he needs to take a time out, right? Verse 7, look at the verse. He takes counsel with himself. Himself there is literally his heart. And so Nehemiah takes some time with his heart. God, what am I going to do with this anger? We see that theme over and over again. Nehemiah prays and then he acts, right? That's what's taking place here. He's contemplating what he's going to do in the midst of his anger. So his anger is righteous, but listen, his response might not be, right? Have you ever been there? Somebody sinned against you. It made you angry, so you went right back at them, and you end up sinning against them. Nehemiah doesn't do that. He pauses He contemplates, he takes counsel with his heart. 
That's a wise thing to do, right, when you're angry. Nehemiah does that. But then he acts, and he acts in generosity, first with his influence. Look at the text with me. Uh, He's been leading this charge to rebuild. We show up on the scene in this moment, and he steps out, and he leverages his influence, and he holds a public assembly. Verse 7, and he brings charges against these nobles, against these officials who have been greedy in the midst of this need. And you just have to picture this moment. So, so Nehemiah is, is standing up, leveraging his influence, being generous with his influence, and he's taking on the wealthiest people in their town. And so he's taking on the who's who in your neighborhood. Right? He's taking on the, the lawyers and the doctors, the important people at your kid's school, who everybody's like, oh, they kind of run the show. Nehemiah is confronting those people. These are important people, and he just got them all together in an assembly in public, and he's bringing charges against them. What Nehemiah is doing, listen, what Nehemiah is doing is not easy, it's generous, right? Generosity isn't easy. It often involves sacrifice and courage, and that's what we see from Nehemiah. And what I love about Nehemiah is he just says it bluntly. Verse 9, he says, the thing you are doing is not good, right? Is the thing they are doing good? No, right? Nehemiah is direct. He confronts them in a direct way. Why is this not good? Nehemiah says it. He says, you're not walking in the fear of our God. Now, now notice this. Some of us may struggle with this connection. Like, why, is, why are these things that they're doing that are not good, why does that have anything to do with the fear of God? Well, as you look at the broader context, as you even look at this chapter, God is foundational in everything Nehemiah does. Just in this chapter alone, twice he mentions the fear of God. He starts off the book in chapter 1. It's his delight to fear God. God is foundational for Nehemiah in everything he does. That, That the problem isn't just horizontal, it's vertical, That these followers of God who say they love God, they're not treating other people horizontally in that way. And Nehemiah says, that's a big problem. Do you not fear God? Leviticus 19, it says, we love God and we love our neighbor. That you can't separate the two. Listen, it would be like if you said to me, like, Pastor Tim, I really like you, but your little kids can't stand them. I'm going to just let you in on a hint. We wouldn't hang out that much if you did that. If you said to me, like, hey, I want to hang out with you, I love you, you're great, let's get coffee, let's get dinner this week, but just make sure you don't bring your greeny, grimy kids, right? We're not going to have a relationship. It's the same way with God. The vertical affects the horizontal. It starts with God. Do you not have a fear of God? Do you not love God? Are you not in awe of God and his commands of how we treat one another? If you were, you wouldn't do this to other people, How does Jesus say we will know we're his disciples? He says, by the way, you love one another. That that the best way we can love the world well is that we want to love one another well. You see, as we look at this, what you see is division because people aren't treating people the way they're supposed to be treated in light of how God has treated them. And you see disunity amongst these people. And we see that today, don't we? Like, as I look at the church landscape today, what I don't see is churches shutting down because they're picketed. 
What I do see a lot of is churches struggling to survive because of internal division. That our biggest threat, and listen, I know there's a lot of things going on in our nation right now, a lot of fears of like, what is everybody going to do to us? What about our religious rights? But I think even in this time frame, our biggest threat is not outside opposition. It's internal division. It's when we stop loving God and loving people like God has called us to. And that's what we see in this passage. But in verse 10 through 12, we see this courage of Nehemiah, this generosity of Nehemiah, his influence lead to a turn. Verses 10 through 12, Nehemiah makes some outstanding demands. He calls these these wealthy people, these nobles, these officials, he says, stop charging them interest. Like, stop doing that. Stop indebting them to yourselves. He says, return everything that's rightfully theirs. Give it all back. Don't enslave people any longer. Don't take their property any longer. Don't lord that over them. And it's really astonishing they agree. Nehemiah calls this big assembly. He brings it direct to them. He's angry about it. He gives them specific requirements. And it says they do what he asked. We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say, verse 12. They bring the priest to seal the deal, to make it official. And look at the result with me, verse 13. Verse 13, it says, And all the assembly said, Amen. They agreed together. Just so you know, that's what we do when we say amen in the church. You're letting me know. You're letting everybody else know. Amen. We agree. We agree together in the Lord. That's what they do. All these people, think about this, all these people who enslaved these other people, who took advantage of these other people, all the people that have been taken advantage of, they come together and they all say amen. We agree together in the Lord. And then they praise the Lord. Nehemiah's generous influence brings about unity and praise. Again, the horizontal is directly linked to the vertical. And if we go back to the beginning, there's a cry of injustice, right? There's a great outcry of injustice. Now we come to verse 13, and there's a great cry of praise. You see the redemptive, the restorative work of God on display in these people. And Nehemiah's courage, his generosity to be influential helps that along. Listen, what you see is is praise. I don't know if you experienced this, if you noticed this about other people, that that you don't see typically, you don't see generous people who regret being generous, right? I was too generous. You don't really see that. You don't see generous people who are walking around sad and depressed, do you? I mean, some of the most generous people I know are some of the happiest, joy-filled people I know, right? Because generosity leads to praise. What I do see in my life and in the lives of others is I see a lot of sad people who are are selfish. They got the job. They got the 401K. They got the family. They got the stuff. And it's not enough. And they're sad and they complain. You don't see that with generous people. Oftentimes, especially in the church, the most generous people are praising God the most as well. And they bring unity in this process. And then we come to our last point. We're generous with our influence. We're generous with our resources. Look at the text with me. We see a few things of his continued generosity. He sacrifices the food allowance he's given as a governor, verses 14 through 15. 
He forgoes money and land. He could have taken, but he forgoes that. Verse 15 tells us the previous governors, they'd taken it. Like there was a cycle of the governors taking advantage of the people, and Nehemiah says, that stops with me. That's not the way I roll, right? I'm here for these people. What's good for these people, it's good for me. And Nehemiah is generous with his resources. Verse 15 and verse 18, he says why. He says, it laid too heavy a burden on the people. It wasn't good for the people. He's not going to do that. He's generous with his resources. You see, here's the reality. They're rebuilding a city. We're rebuilding people. And there are needs. And there's a call in our lives because God has been generous with us that we might be generous with others, with our influence, with our our resources, that we don't just look out as Christians. We don't just look out for ourselves. We look out for others. It's not just about us. It's about the world around us, right? And so we're generous. And as we look at our city, what are the needs? We're not rebuilding a wall, but we are rebuilding people. We are making disciples of Jesus, and there's needs, maybe not the same as In Nehemiah's day, but there's needs. Uh, Barna Research, a a group that goes around and does research about church and Christianity and all those things, in 2015 said that Phoenix was the ninth least church city in America. There's a spiritual need. Downtown, there's a physical need. Some of us live downtown, some of us live central. Some of us commute to get here. Some of us commute to downtown for work. And and what's really interesting, if you're new to Phoenix, this is really interesting. This is happening as we are here. There's a convergence of the wealthiest, well-off commuters, residents in our city converging upon the most poor, impoverished, hurting people in our city. And I don't know if you realize the geography of where we are right now in this room, but we are smack dab in the middle of all of that. You just look across the street, you see the U of A Cancer Center, high rises coming in. You see all these condos coming in. You see some of these neighborhoods around here, houses are, are four or $500,000. And then literally you go in our backyard, that's one side of the street, you go on the other side of the street, some of the poorest people in our city are here. It's a unique time to be in this part of our city. It's a unique part of the city where where you see this convergence coming upon one another. And here's what I know and here's what I see. I don't see much interaction between the two, right? I was talking to a few of our leaders, and, and I just, over the last few months, I've just gotten this burden and this vision and this prayer for us as a church as we're two and a half years old that we might, that we might bridge that gap. If, if there's not much bridging that gap, that maybe that's why God has called us to be here. That, that as we serve the needy, we're doing that this Saturday, we'll do that on this mission trip with this VBS. As we serve the needy, that we'd also, that we'd also invest and reach these well-off commuters. Maybe you came here today and you're like, do I belong here? I don't live downtown. Yes, absolutely. I believe God is, is compelling you to drive into downtown Phoenix so that your heart could be captivated by Jesus and his mission so that you could not just change lives but legacies of this whole area. That as people move in high-rises that don't have a care in the world, that what if, listen, what if they got Jesus and they began to care about Jesus vertically and therefore they began to care about people horizontally and they looked across the street and said, hey, I'm going to do something about this need. Because, listen, here's what I know. 
We're a church that's new about 150 people. We can change a few lives. But if the people in the high-rises, the commuters, if all of us in this room, if we begin to be stirred up with generosity, we could change legacies. As this area begins to be transformed, you could be a part of a story of transformation, of people who remember, I remember what that area used to be like. I remember those families who used to live 10, 12 people in a house, and none of them were their actual family. I remember those schools that never had school supplies. The teachers quit every year. There was all this turnover, and that you could be a part of restoring that because you're generous with your influence, with your resources, because we invite more people to be generous with their influence, with their resources. Listen, I don't know if you know this, but that's the opportunity before us today. We're not rebuilding a wall, but we are rebuilding a people, an area. And God is inviting you to be a part of that with your generosity. And so listen, how do we do that? That's a lot, right? That weighs heavy on us. There's a lot of needs. Some of you are thinking right now, okay, okay, like, I don't know. I don't, Tim, I don't know. I don't know if I can sign up for that. I don't know if I have enough resources. I don't know if I have enough influence. How do we do that? I want to give you two questions of how to live this out. The first one is this. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? What's important to you? Is it just your inconvenience? Or is it the injustices of those around you? What makes you angry? It reveals what's important to you. It's not easy. It's generosity. What makes you angry? What's important? The second question What makes you generous? Do you have a foundation of God, a motivation of people? Do you see yourself as a steward, not an owner? Do you use money and love people, not the other way around? Are you leveraging what you do have, starting somewhere, what you do have, your influence, your resources to affect the lives of others? So what makes you angry? What makes you generous? Here's what I know. As we close, I know as we look at a sermon like this, as we talk about need, greed, and generosity, a lot of us do have some conviction right now. And what, what we could do if we're not careful is right now in your head, you're holding court. And you're thinking, well, is he talking to me? <laughs> Does this really apply to me? I mean, I'm a college student. Does this really apply to me? I mean, I don't, I don't make a lot of money. I mean, we're a young couple with a, a little baby. I mean, does this really apply to me? I mean, we're an older couple. I mean, I'm kind of trying to get towards retirement. That's really important, Tim. I need to invest in me and not in the lives of others. And, and right now, you're holding court, right? I know because as I read this, I was holding court. I, well, how far should we really go, God? I mean, when you, when you talk about generous, how generous, before taxes, after taxes. I just, I just need some help with that. And, and I hold court and we hold court. And listen, what you do in the next few moments is really important. Are you going to let that conviction lead you to defending and deflecting? Or are you going to let that conviction to lead you to confessing and repenting? Those are the two options we have. We can hold court and we can defend and deflect and say, you know what? Other, other people will probably pick up that tab. I mean, there's some other wealthy people in here. There's some other people that have influence more than I do. I mean, I'm not that outspoken. I'm not like Nehemiah. I could never do what he did. I could never stand up for people around me, people in my own family. I could never be generous like that. And we defend and we deflect. Maybe one day, when I get my schedule in order, 
When I get my finances cleaned up, then, then I'll be able to do this. We defend and we deflect. Don't do that. Because here, here's what I know. As you do that, that conviction will switch over to guilt. You'll suppress it. You'll go to lunch. You'll go to work tomorrow morning, and, and you'll start to feel guilty. But you'll be like, no, I'm just going to ignore that. I'm just going to get to Sunday and sing some songs and hear another sermon. It's going to be okay. And listen, some of you, that's all you've done your whole life in church. You get convicted, you suppress it, you ignore it, and you do it over and over again. Listen, that's horrible. Like, why would you do that? Why would you come back here to do that every Sunday? That's not church, that's religion. And listen, some of you, that's all you've experienced. But there's a greater option. There's a greater option of confessing and repenting because of Jesus. That as we look at Nehemiah, he wasn't perfect. He wasn't completely generous all the time. He wasn't. But as you look at Jesus, he was, right? He leverages all of his influence. He goes from the palace of heaven to the people on earth. He confronts sin. He brings everybody together. He puts a cross on a hill, and he confronts it. He lives the perfect life that we could never live. He's generous with his influence. He leaves the palace to be with the people, but he's also generous with his resources. He takes all of his holiness, all of his grace, all of his forgiveness, and he dies for you and he dies for me. He's generous and he's generous perfectly. And so listen, you have the opportunity in the midst of your conviction this morning not to defend, not to deflect, but to confess and repent because of Jesus Christ. He's made all the resources you need available to you. You have to step out and take advantage of them. You have to take a second to confess and say, Jesus, I have not served my spouse well. Start there. I'm not generous. I just, I just don't do much for her. I'm not intentional. I was back in the day. Uh, maybe a wife, I was back in the day, but I'm not anymore. With your kids, you're, you're saying mine a lot, right? And you're just like, I'm not generous. You need to confess that. Jesus has given you the provision available to confess that and be forgiven, but not just to be forgiven and go back to the way you used to live, to be generous, to repent, to change. And so listen, we want to help you, equip you to do that. Something as simple as this hospitality team, to serve, to be generous with your time and your resources on a Sunday morning. You can do that, right? How do you confess and repent? You talk to God and then you move out to people hospitality team. This Saturday, we're going to get in Verde Park, and we're going to serve people in need, organizations in need. We're going to host 90 people who are going to help us serve families in need next week. You can be a part of that. We want to help you with this. I know it's not easy. We want to give you tools to do this. Imagine with me for a second what would happen if we did. What if we just started somewhere? Every person, every resource, every influence in this room, what if we were generous like Nehemiah was generous? I think we would see this area, this city, come together and say, amen. Praise the Lord. God has restored us together. And that would be a beautiful sight that you and I can be a part of. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the story of Nehemiah. I pray as many of us are convicted right now, we wouldn't waste that conviction. We wouldn't waste it on guilt or ignoring it but we would redeem it, we would use it for action, that we would confess in this moment, we would repent of just even the small ways that we're not generous. 
and you would move us to action, starting with our family, with our friends, with our, our neighbors, with this church. God, that we might be able to say confidently, amen, we agree together, we are unified as a people, and we're going to praise the Lord, and we're going to see other people come and praise him also. We're going to see legacies change because we're stepping out in faith and being generous. God, God help us. I pray just for the men and women right now that, that we would respond in this moment, that you would help us to see clear steps to do that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.